Peace, everybody. This is your host, Akeem Mel from Hindsight Radio, the information station changing the nation. Uh, as you know, I have a show every Tuesday on Blog Talk Radio at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, you can log in at blogtalkradio.com forward slash hindsight 21. Uh, today, I'm going to make a short video on some statements made from that congressional record that I've been reading over the last few weeks. I did two videos. This is the third part. And there's something striking in the statements of a particular professor. The statements of Vine Deloria, professor, University of Arizona, Tucson, Arizona. All right, here we go. He says, Mr. Deloria. Oh, thank you, Senator Inouye. I delayed my testimony because it doesn't directly relate to the Iroquois situation. I want to thank you for introducing the resolution, and I would like to make some suggestions about how in the next couple of years, some of the spirit of the resolution can be carried out. Quite often, the Congress and political theorists describe the United States as a system of checks and balances where the three branches of government work together and place limitations on each other problem that American Indians have is that that checks and balances really don't work with Indian tribes. American history shows that when dealing with Indians, the three branches defer to each other. The ultimate difference between then being then to the Congress and no checks and balance exists. The Congress, at least in the last 100 years, in my opinion, has transferred a good deal of its legislative authority to the federal bureaucracy by attaching to legislation. In most instances, the authority to promulgate rules and regulations to carry out the effect of the statute. The net result is that there are no protections for Indian people, their rights, or their property. The bureaucracy, in effect, makes up the rules under which Indians live. The courts pick up on bureaucratic practices and declare that long-established administrative practices are evident of the intent of Congress. As a result, the protections granted all other Americans under the Constitution never come into play with Indian people, and we have seen our status go from dependent domestic nations to virtually helpless wards of the government where, in some instances, it takes the signatures of up to 20 bureaucrats to use a piece of Indian land. The Arizona Republic has recently come out with a series of articles on the Bureau of Indian Affairs in the federal administration. In my youth, we used to call the Bureau a hotbed of inertia. But today, I think you could call it a crime in progress if the stories in the Republic have any validity. I suggest you go find those archives at YouTube. Arizona Republic is a newspaper. Uh, All right, let me keep going. My concern at this hearing is that we can do all the investigations and newspaper reports that we want, but ultimately, there will have to be certain fundamental structural changes involved in the definition of the Indian-Federal relationship, one of which is clear definition of the status of Indian tribes. If the United States is a government of consent, then I think we look at American history at what Indians consented to have relations with the United States and to place themselves under federal protection. See, it said, let me read it again. If the United States is a government of consent, 
that is very powerful that's remedy there everything's by consent but somehow we are under the illusion that you have to do something it says here it's supposed to be a government by consent all right let me keep reading this point can only be found as a voluntary expression in the indian treaties and those treaties were supposed to be the supreme law of the land that is in the constitution constitution article one However, we have seen the treaties since 1870 be consistently overruled by subsequent congressional statute. Now, when I speak of courts deferring to Congress or the executive deferring to Congress, the most frequent situation we have is where Congress passes a statute not believing that it is in conflict with an Indian right of property and a subsequent controversy arises and Indians go to court. Court defers to Congress in the sense of recognizing the plenary, plenary power of Congress over Indians. And the court then creates a fictional scenario in which they create a fictional intent of Congress. The best example I can think of is the debate on federal water rights in the 1950s, where it was clear that Indian property would not come under the McCarran Amendment. But subsequent litigation in, interpreted the McCarran Amendment to apply to Indian rights because they had an aspect of federal protection to them. And we are included in the bundle of federal rights. In Lone Wolf versus Hitchcock and a number of other classic Indian cases, we have instances in which the Supreme Court of the United States simply creates legal doctrines that give Congress overwhelming power over Indian tribes and in effect overrule treaties. Although it is never clear in the actual statute in question that Congress ever intended to overrule any Indian treaty, I would suggest the best parallel of the relationship of tribes to the United States is the Tenth Amendment, and that is the U.S. government is a government of delegated powers, delegated by the people, delegated by the states to the federal government. All powers not delegated to the federal government are reserved to the states or the people, respectively. In like manner, the Indian treaties are a delegation of certain rights and properties to the United States with a withholding of similar rights and properties to the Indian tribes. That doctrine enunciated in the Northwest Fishing Rights case, U.S. versus Winters, says anything not delegated to the United States must be reserved to the tribes and the people of the tribes. So there's a definite legal status to being a dependent domestic nation but unless we have a clear statement by congress of what this relationship is we will continue to be forced into expensive litigation which the federal courts have an absolutely free hand to announce strange doctrines constructed only with the intent of reconciling a long-standing treaty right with a congressional statute with the history of congressional statutes showing that there was no effort by congress to discuss indian rights prior to its passage additionally we have other doctrines of interpretation that are used in federal court when interpreting primarily general legislation that I think are extremely detrimental to Indian tribes. We need clarification of those. Basically, what is being said here is that they have treaties that clearly outline the rights of the indigenous people. Now... What happens is they go into litigation and the courts are interpreting it in the favor of Congress or 
they're favoring they term determining these cases to the detriment of the indigenous people. It's a clear intent to overrule what is supposed to be the supreme law of the land, which is treaty. And after treaties, then you have constitution. But what, what, what are they doing? They're hiring lawyers to go in here and fight these causes. And you know what happens when you have a lawyer. They will muddy the waters. And if they are a lawyer that is hired or works under the system of the United States, they're going to do whatever they can to work for that system. So if we need to get remedy, we can't go to their lawyers to do this. We're going to have to do this on our own. You see, you're going to have to go to the court as the people or as the people who, ha who has these rights and make your demands. Okay. You have some guy with a bar club card draw up, draft up the, 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 the these motions and you're going to fall right into the trap so many fall into what? To someone's opinion. It's not about opinion. It's about certified copies of these treaties and entering them. And hit, the facts are clear. No matter what statute they put in place. See, what they're doing is taking statute and making that the law. And it's not. All right? Let me keep going. The logic in a lot of these interpretations is deadly, inescapable, and unjust. If Congress intended to include the Indians in this legislation, it would have specifically said so. So what he's saying is the legislation doesn't apply to the Indians. So why are they using the legislation and fighting to, as and making these determinations when they draft these statutes or these laws, as they call it, or these legal, uh, th these legal ideas, then the, the indigenous people are not in mind. So what does it say in the constitution? Indians not taxed. Indigenous people are not included in these laws. That's what it's actually saying right here. They don't have them in mind. They have their citizens, their people to have jurisdiction over. Okay. All right. The reverse of that coin is that if Congress had intended to exclude Indians, it would have specifically said so. All of us in this room can see the arbitrary nature of law when a judge has the option to say you are either inside or outside the confines of law, depending on whether I choose to create the fiction that if Congress had wanted to include you, you, they would have mentioned you. If they wanted to exclude you, they would have mentioned you. Very powerful statement there. As long as legal, as legal doctrines like that are used freely in the courts of the United States, there will be no end to litigation. There will be no solution to Indian problems. With the federal bureaucracy vested with almost unlimited powers, Indian tribes at this point must have some vested rights under the Constitution to protect themselves. See, that's why it's very important on how do you identify yourself. What's your nationality? Are you black, African, American, white? All of these titles that they created, those are U.S. titles, U.S. person titles. So if you identify that, then you are up under that. If you're identifying with that, you see, that's why I have made it my mission to show you guys how to identify yourselves properly and clear the record. 
Okay, clear it. Uh, you know, you, see, people have been teaching you guys. Oh, just don't don't mess with that. Don't do. Yes, I, I in some instances I agree, but in in other instances, if you have been living a lie as this fiction that they created, you got to go undo that. You can't just oh I'm out of here I'm out of it. No, you got to undo all of those connections you have made and say here I am setting the record straight. So on and so forth. Okay. The only, the only way we can vest those rights in a series of clear congressional directives, these directives would be to the government as a whole. They would have to be recognized in the federal courts as doctrines of interpretation which express the intent of Congress. Doctrines which must be followed in hearing, resolving Indian litigation. These would be doctrines that should be followed by people in the federal bureaucracy. These would be doctrines that would hopefully be followed by subsequent administrations and executive officers. I would suggest that most needed doctrine at the present time is a clear statement that unless Congress specifically examines Indian treaty rights or outstanding statutory rights and specifically includes Indians. That specifically includes Indians in legislation. National legislation does not apply to Indian tribes. If we had that directive, we could eliminate a good deal of litigation that is going on today. But we have to have a clear statement so that one, we minimize litigation, and two, when we go to court, we have an even chance of getting a resolution of the problem. One of the big problems that we additionally face is the recognition that the original treaty relationship was a relationship of consent following the session of treaty making in 1871. The right of Indian consent was gradually whittled down by bureaucratic inroads. In recent times, particularly beginning with the 1934 Indian Reorganization Act, the idea that Indians should be consulted before legislation or programs for them were put forth became very popular. This was very popular in the 1960s when the poverty wars were going on and people were saying that you should consult the poor before you proceed. The current state of Indian affairs shows consultation is a myth. When you view it from the bureaucratic standpoint, consultation merely means that you try to talk to the Indians into what you want to do. Following that meeting, you proceed to do what you want to do anyway. What we need is a federal statute saying that there must be an Indian consent before any program of the federal government can be operated on a reservation or operated in manner that would affect Indian rights. We need the right to say no to federal statutes insofar as they are effective on the reservation. The IRA is interpreted as meaning that the word of the Secretary of Interior is the dominant word on the reservation and that the Secretary of the Interior must approve all tribal resolutions passed. What we need is a statute saying that if a tribal council votes no, then the decision of the Secretary of the Interior is not the law for the reservation decision of the tribal council is this change will prove controversial in a number of cases but unless we have some checks and balances to protect ourselves against the federal bureaucracy there is no way that anything is going to change out on those reservations the bureaucrats simply make up the rules as they go along i could cite chapter and verse for the rest of the year on conflicting interpretations of federal law given at different area offices at the different times with regard to the same thing. The 
there's a final thing that, that I think must really be considered. And that is that the question of the honor of the United States, its relationship to Indians has to be raised in a congressional context. The treaties are more than a legal document. They are a pledge of the integrity of one people to another. We have seen the integrity of the United States badly eroded on the justification that there were certain ex expedient things to be accomplished. The frontier has been settled for quite a while, and we are now approaching the 500th anniversary of the landing of Columbia. So 500 years of contact with Western European civilization, civilization is enough. We need some protection so that we can continue our own existence. Honor and integrity require that Congress follow up on oversight hearings on everything that the federal bureaucracy does. Let me cite you two examples of what I consider most almost criminal congressional negligence. The Indian Claims Commission Act was passed in 1946. It was intended to be a commission, and the premises of that act was that within five years in open and informal hearings, the commission could look at the Indian claims and reach some just settlement. Section 13. I believe it was gave I believe it was gave that the commission investigatory powers and the commission was supposed to look at all the claims in an informal layman's equitable eye and determine the validity and scope of those claims. Claims commission within five years of its founding was turned into another federal court with all the federal court procedures. The investigative decision or function of the commission was simply truncated. It got so bad that Commissioner John Vance in the late 1970s published an article saying that what the Claims Commission was doing was ridiculous. He first pointed out that instead of a commission fairly hearing claims, the commission had been turned into a federal court in which lawyers dominated, here you go, lawyers dominated, and Indians were not allowed to speak their piece. What is that paragraph saying? They get the lawyer involved, now you can't speak your rights. Okay, this is what's happening. And this is, this is not happening just in these cases. This is happening in all cases, you know, where you have supposedly paid this guy to help you. He actually screws you. It is no secret to any of us that there are a lot of mad Indians out in the United States. My own tribe, Shoshonis, and others who feel they have been unjustly handled by the Indian Claims Commission, look at the response of Congress after it authorized the Indian Claims Commission, it is negligent and negligible. Not once did it go back and call those commissioners to account for turning the commission into a court instead of a commission. In several hearings that were held renewing the Claims Commission simply concentrated on what additional procedures might be needed in order to resolve the claims. As a result, claims turned into simply money judgments against the United States. The right to religion, the right to culture, right to self-government never came up in the claims commission this is why you have to bring up your right to religion your right to culture see when you let these government entities try to handle it they're going to sidestep it you know why it's very simple they don't have a right to uh talk about religion they can't talk about religion or anything related to your culture in those courtrooms so they're not going to be able to do anything for you see it's seeking remedy from people who cab cannot even give it to them. All right. A lot of tribes did not want to say the United States had taken their land. They wanted assurances from the United States that they could practice their religion freely and they, they would not have their children subject to compulsory school attendance 
hundreds of miles from their home. They wanted a great many cultural freedoms and protection, and that is what they thought a settlement with the United States would be, that you will finally settle accounts and live together as the wampum belt showed. At any point, at any time between 1944 and the present, Congress could have held oversight hearings. It called those bureaucrats, it called those bureaucrats and commissions to account, and it could have turned that situation around so that we could not, we would not have the volatility out in Indian country that we have today. The second example is the recent passage of the American Indian Religious Freedom Act. This resolution is as, as innocuous as can be. Representative Morris Udall got on the floor of the House of Representatives and he said, this is just an expression of federal intent. It is not going to affect any laws. Nevertheless, the resolution directed federal agencies to go into consult, consultation with Indians before they proceed with their programs in any instance where it would conflict with Indian religion or practice of traditional things. The attacks on traditional religion since the passage of that resolution are absolutely astounding. There has been more litigation on Indian religious questions since Congress attempted to clarify that than there were before. The courts, with no direction from the Congress, have now evolved a doctrine that an Indian religious practice must be the central core of religion in order to be protected. A good many Indian religious practices are now described as merely cultural artifacts and not religious practices as all at all. So now the government is determining what is a religious practice. In the last 10 years, we have come under a more severe oppression of religious freedom than we did before Congress passed the American Indian Religious Freedoms Resolution. So my request in the hearing is for you to take your colleagues in Congress and demand that national honor be demonstrated. And part of this national honor would be a clarification of the federal laws and the interpretation of federal laws that are applied to American Indians. The second thing would be severe oversight hearings on federal agencies dealing with American Indians. It is quite an embarrassment to me and to other people in this room, and I am sure to you, Senator, to realize at this stage of American life, there is virtually no accountability in the federal government, particularly in the executive branch, and specifically with relation to us in the Department of the Interior and the Bureau of Indian Affairs. If Congress chooses to maintain, it has a plenary power over Indians, then we think the plenary power should be used in a positive manner and the federal agencies dealing with American Indians should be held to account and held to the highest standard of behavior and that the whole federal government should recognize that status of independent domestic nations as quite a bit of content, content found in the Constitution and in American history. In the next couple of years, if we could have hearings on the substantive legal issues and then get some very short declaratory and clarification statutes defining what Indian rights are, that would give us the necessary leverage and the standing to, to then help do better in defending our own rights. In that spirit, I hope this resolution simply marks the beginning of what could be a new and very aggressive defense of American Indians' rights and their communities. Thank you very much. So there you have it. Uh, um, that professor speaking very plainly and directly about what was going on. And it, it, I'm reading this because it shows you what not to do. Because they're going to the very entity that don't want to give them their rights, who's, who's actually robbing them of their rights. You have to do it a different way. So, 
All right. Thank you for listening to that. Oh, uh, tune in because there's more to come. Because there's a lot of remedy here. Just you know, the different paragraphs I'm reading, and I'll be sharing that uh, pretty soon in my private membership. All right. Peace. Peace, everybody. This is Akeem L. from the Truth Tuesday Show on Hindsight Radio, the information station changing the nation. All right. Doing another short video on this uh, document about the Iroquois Confederation and the founding of the Constitutions. Just uh, continuing with the revealing of the truth of what's really going on. Who is the difference between the two governments? And if you can catch between the lines as I read, the remedy. All right. Um, this is the, the chairman speaking now that I'm going to read from. Here it is. To say that this was a fascinating discussion would be an understatement. And to suggest that this was a very important panel would be a gross understatement. What you have just said, Mr. Deloria, is foremost in my mind. I have been chairman of this committee now for 10 months, and in order to acquaint myself with the concerns and problems of Indian people, it may surprise you to know that I have spent more time conducting hearings relating to Indian affairs than all of the other committees over which I chair combined, including the Iran Committee. I am chairman of the Appropriations Subcommittee on Foreign Operations and the Subcommittee on Communications of the Commerce Committee. I have early on set an agenda for this committee and myself in particular to seek the advice and absorb the wisdom of Indian people. As a result, I must most shamefully note that I was the first chairman to ever visit the Pacific Northwest. I was the first chairman to officially visit the Navajos or the Hopis and the Yakimas or, or for that matter, just about any tribe in the Southwest and the Pacific Northwest. So what he's saying is, they had all these committees before that was supposed to take care of the relationship between the indigenous people. They didn't that no one cared. They knew the treaties were there, but they didn't want to do anything about it. Why? It didn't fit the agenda of white supremacy. All right. Congress, when it legislates, 
does not do so all the time on the basis of compassion or justice or equity. That would be the ideal situation that legislation be based upon sensitivity, equality, and justice. Unfortunately, Congress makes decisions based upon the scale of political power. If the scale is heavier on the Indian side, once in a while the Indians get a break, but all too often, as most of you must have noted, the scale of power is on the other side. So Congress, who was supposed to be the trustees, have abused their powers. Trustees is supposed to see to the beneficiaries' benefit, right? But they've been seeing to their own benefit. If you were the trustee of a trust and you mishandled the trust, you would go to jail. You would get locked up. You would be charged with a crime. So what do you think should happen to the Congress in this matter? This committee is, as I think, a classic example. This is a relatively new committee because it was not in existence two decades ago. When it was restored, it was temporary committee. That is why it still has the designation of being a select committee. A select committee in the Congress usually suggests that the committee is for a given purpose or a given term, like the select committee on Iran-Contra affairs. This committee today is a permanent committee. We are in the process of amending the title by deselect. Deleting select on my agenda, I feel that there are many things that have to be done. One, the people of the United States must be made aware of this unique relationship. The purpose of these hearings, and incidentally, the major purpose of the investigation committee is not the investigation of crimes, because in the final analysis, the investigation of alleged crimes will be conducted by other authorities, the Justice Department or the U.S. attorneys or the courts. If one should look and study the resolution that created the committee, you will note that the most important aspect is to investigate this relationship between the government of the United States and the sovereign governments of Indian people. Because as noted by all of you, clarification is long overdue. See, there was a sovereign government. Our dealings with Indians have been based upon myths or misunderstandings and as Professor Deloria indicated, the assumption of authority, which I do not feel was properly delegated to the bureaucrats of this nation. See, they took power. They assumed power over indigenous people. And we know what happened. They started reclassifying a lot of us as colored, Negro, African-Americans. And then gave a select few who had a certain pigment color in their skin the title of indigenous or Indian. All right? It will take a while, but I can assure you that we will look into this and hopefully at the appropriate time begin the process of clarification. He said it would take a while. So here he is. He's telling them it's going to take a while. You know, he sounded good in the beginning. Now he said it's going to take a while and it's going to be a process of clarification more BS. It may interest you to know that at this very moment, the Senate of the United States is debating the farm credit bill. In this huge measure are two provisions that should be of intense interest to all of you. One, if adopted, would begin to change in the nature of trusteeship and land tenure. It says that if an Indian person or tribe should find itself unable to pay its debts to the farmer's home loan bank, this land may be acquired by any Indian of any tribe. 
So a Yakima could conceivably be become of the owner of a Navajo land or any tribe. Navajos could purchase Yakima land. See? So if they couldn't pay off a loan, only indigenous people could purchase these lands. No one outside of it. And I'm sure that was not followed. There's another provision in there that says if an Indian tribe or person or corporate entity should purchase land, which was at that moment subject to county or state taxation, that right of taxation will follow the land. This will be the first intrusion into the long-established policy that Indian land is not subject to taxation. See, they're trying to tax land. Well, they were. They are taxing land. Now, think about it. All of this land is indigenous people's land, Right? So how they collecting taxes? Yeah, we all know they had to convert you into a estate. And then when you purchase a home, you don't really buy it. You're renting it. That mortgage is really a rental agreement for 30 years, 15, 30, whatever. But, you know, to, to appease your sensibilities to keep you deaf, dumb, and blind, they give you a tax break, a small one at that. But you really, buying a home is nothing more than another form of renting. You know, lesser payment. You know, 30 years you can have this. 15 years it's yours. You know, they give you a death note. All right. So what I am trying to point out is this is a matter of constant concern to some of us here. As soon as we conclude these hearings, I will go to the Senate floor to see what I can do to erase these two provisions in the measure. I'll see what I can do. Okay. If you are interested, it is... In the Title VI, Section 602. If those sections ever passed, then the process of erosion of land tenure has legislatively and officially started. I don't suppose the members who proposed these amendments did so with any malice, but I think but I think did so without the proper appreciation and recognition of this unique relationship of one sovereign with another. Letting you know indigenous people are sovereign. This is why they don't want the darker-skinned indigenous people to know who they really are. Because it will show that they are sovereign. They're another nation outside of the United States. So, yes, what I'm saying is, are we sovereigns? Of course. Of our own indigenous culture with agreements that were long ago established a separation of powers between our sovereign government and theirs. All right? It would be a frustrating process at times, but I can assure you as chairman of this committee, committee, we will explore this. Since we have with us on this first panel historians and men and women who have spent much of their adult lives looking into the history of this relationship, I would like to get some clarification on what I have learned in the last few months. I've been advised that since 1778, I believe that is the first treaty we have had a treaty. At, we have had a total of 370 treaties between the United States government and Indian nations. Is that correct? Ms. Locklear, that is the figure that is usually used. Dear Chairman, am I also correct that provisions of every one of these treaties have been violated? Ms. Lockley, I can't say that absolutely, but that would not surprise me, Senator. The chairman, well, can you tell me of any treaty that has not been violated? Ms. Lockley, none of the ones that I have worked on so far. The chairman, what is your understanding? Mr. Deloria, 
There are technical attorneys' interpretations, which is is that various articles are specifically violated. I think the spirit of all the treaties are all the pledge of good faith between Indians and the United States. That spirit has certainly long since been destroyed. Even more important, there are probably close to 800 treaties, all told, about 430 of them being unratified treaties and a number of those unratified treaties being very important to Indians. The California treaties, for example, were hidden in the Senate chambers for over 50 years because people didn't want to deal with California land title. The land titles in the Washington and Oregon area, the tribes signed those in good faith, and the United States needed those treaties to exert a claim against Great Britain or Oregon. But those treaties were never ratified. So not only have ratified treaties been violated, but the United States have claimed to own lands based on treaties that it itself refused to ratify or admit as legal documents. So it is a very sordid history. What is he saying? If we can go back and prove that they made decisions on unratified documents, things that wasn't agreed upon unanimously, they would have to compensate. And this is why they keep the history buried and they keep coming up with these other narratives and keep distracting you with all of these other things. Like right now, we're distracted with what? Black Lives Matter, this pandemic um, that's supposed to be so deadly. Um, and now they want you to wear a mask for medical use when the boxes clearly say not for medical use. It was interesting. I was looking at a, a live video of the governor of North Carolina, Cooper, and he was talking about um, the mandate on mask, um, it, you know, the requirement of mask. And he said something, and, and this is why, you know, this is what people miss or they overlook when they're listening to these people. He said, well, you know, you know, the mass requirements, you know, when people are violating that, that rule, that, that, that mandate, you know, we want people to let us know, let the, let, you know, call, you know, call the police, call the authorities. And this is what he said. And I'm quoting exactly what he said. Although, the authorities won't arrest for not wearing a mask, but what they'll do is they'll give the people a trespassing uh, charge if they're in a business not refusing to wear a mask. Um, They'll give them a trespassing charge. So what he just said, that they cannot arrest you for not wearing a mask. See, what they're doing, they're getting the ignorant public to enforce these mask mandates and then how they get around it, you're in a place and you're refusing to mask, or now you're trespassing and they're asking you to leave and stuff like that. Now they get you for trespassing. There's a solution to that problem. Stop eating out. Eat at home. And see, and once these businesses suffer from not making money and they realize that they're not going to make money, they're going to stop trying to enforce bogus rules. See, they, they trick the public into enforcing unconstitutional rules. No one can make you wear a medical device on your face or make you wear anything on your body. Now, and even in that rule is, is a 
says, you know, you can be medically exempt or you could just say you're exempt from wearing it and they have to leave you alone. But no one reads. And then people are genuinely in fear of this this virus. You know what happens when you get in fear of something? You will most likely come in contact with it and have some issues. You know, I'm not here to say it's real or not. What I'm saying is reality is mask medically don't work. <laughs> They're not. I mean, the box tell you, even when you buy it, not for medical use. But people wear it, you know, you know, because they believe it's it's required. All right. Or and some believe because they feel like they're going to be safe, safer, you know. So let's I didn't mean to get on to into all of that. But here we go. The chairman, I have been advised that 200 years ago, the government of the United States recognized the sovereignty of Indian nation over 550 million acres of land. Would that be correct? Ms. Locklear, that sounds, again, roughly accurate, Senator. I am sorry that I can't say I have ever totaled the acres, but given what we do know about the Iroquois tribe's territory, for example, in New York State and the acreage covered there, I would suspect that is correct. The chairman, and this recognition was articulated in our treaties. Isn't that correct? Ms. Locklear, that is correct. The chairman, and I believe the record will show that today, Indian nations have sovereignty over 50 million acres of land. So from 550 to 50. How did this happen? How did that happen? You see, over the years... The children wanted to be something else. They wanted to be a part of the U.S. government, so they didn't make their claim. Okay? Dr. Deloria, approximately, the chairman. So the violation of these treaties resulted in the loss of 500 million acres of land, if my mathematics are correct. Mr. Deloria, yes, right. The chairman. One hears of the so-called American policy to make certain that Indians were pressing west of the Mississippi, was there ever such a federal policy? And if so, when was that enunciated? Mr. Deloria, that is a removal policy, Senator. The first prominent mention is when Thomas Jefferson in Bayan, Louisiana, thought it would be a good place to put the Indians west of the river. By about 1812, there are removal treaties signed in the Ohio area that begin to move people west, but the best known is the Act of 1830. The Removal Act was passed Congress by a very slim majority, which authorized the President Andrew Jackson to negotiate with the tribes of the South and move them west. Of course, there was virtually no negotiation. They just said, you have to move west now and force these treaties through. Now, doesn't that sound like very familiar what's happened to a lot of what they're calling Negroes, blacks, African-Americans years ago, many years ago, how they just ran you off your property. That's what I'm saying. The plight of the indigenous and the so-called Negro African-American colored folks are basically the same. What I'm saying, they are the same people just reclassified. See, they want to think that the, want you to believe that the indigenous people were dying off. They didn't die off. Paper genocide, just reclassified. That was the easiest way to get rid of millions of indigenous people. 
and the ones that knew better, who stayed under their tribes, they formed these treaties. You see? Then years of miseducation, brainwashing, children didn't grow up not knowing, grew up not knowing who they really were. Okay? You know, a lot of them believed they were slaves from Africa. Removal was discussed as late as 1891. After Wounded Knee Massacre, there was a discussion of moving everybody to Oklahoma and bringing Oklahoma with forts and barbed wire and just keeping people there until they were civilized. But that failed for lack of appropriation, for what I understand. Removal occurs over and over again. It is basically a policy to move the Indians out of the way of whatever the United States wants to do. The chairman, we hear much of the Indian Wars. What period did this cover? Mr. Shape, my understanding is the period of Indian Wars began. There was a series of stages, and at the first initial contact, there was peace and friendship because the European settlers who came here needed knowledge and skills and help and assistance of Native peoples. We have just celebrated Thanksgiving, which in part is to commemorate the spirit of that relationship that was initially formed. Then when the balance of power begins to shift, and certain individuals individuals feel bolder that they can begin to claim or take by means of force or sometimes fraud certain tracts of land, then certain individuals become more aggressive. As a result, disagreements have occurred, sometimes misunderstandings through lack of commun- communication. As a result, Indian people have stood up to try to defend their rights. As a result, sometimes violence has been perpetrated against them. As an example of misunderstandings and how wars got started early on, when the European settlers came here, they thought it was perfectly all right to go out and hunt a deer in the forest. But if an Indian man hunted a cow, well, that would be considered thievery. As a result, there needed to be actually a joint system of justice. The chairman, if I may interrupt at that point, when did the United States government begin to officially commit military units? Mr. Schaefer? The policy changed actually quite early on. I found documentation in the secret proceedings of the Continental Congress. The original policy early in 1776 was one of peace and neutrality. George Washington needed soldiers to fight in the Revolutionary War, so he and three of his generals went secretly to Philadelphia and lobbied the Continental Congress to change the policy one of war and aggression. He, in a sense, was saying Indians either have to join us and join the United States Army, or they will be against us. See what they did? They went to war. Changed the policy from peace to war. After they got their con- their, their constitution from these people, their, 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 their way of setting up government, they switched up on them. All right? No honor. And you know what goes around comes out. If you don't have honor in what you do, you will be dishonored. And this is what's happened now. We, we're dealing with a system that is collapsing. Don't expect it to go back to what it was. And why would you want it to go back to what it was? This pandemic was a blessing. You know, a lot of you are worried about a new world order. But if you have your fears in order, you don't have to worry about that. If you believe in the in the God in you and the power in you, you don't have to worry about what's going to happen. Whatever happened will happen. There's no need to be in fear. Act in power and knowing who you are and you'll be all right, you and your family. 
Just prepare. Back to the document. At that point in time, a policy began to change, and the original position was that the United States encouraged peace and neutrality among Indian nations, and the Grand Council agreed with that. In fact, I found exact documentation that the Grand Council of the Iroquois Confederacy in 1776 called all the warriors in at a time when the British were offering bounties for American scalps. Oh, so who was scalping people? The British, huh? Wow. They was offering them bounties for that. So this whole story we heard in school that the, the Indians were scalpers. Who would, this is showing that who initiated this. These are real uncivilized people. Dangerous. Terrorist. Because this, this is what you're looking at. You're reading a document about terrorism. This is what this is outlining. No one has used that word in here. But they've used it so freely against other people in other countries that they were terrorists. But when you read this, this is terrorism at its highest form. And it's still going on. Right? Two of the chiefs went out and actually brought all the warriors back in. And they said, the British are trying to get us involved in war. The Americans are not. They are saying, remain in peace and neutrality and within friendship. That is what is within our best interests. When that policy changed and the United States officials began to actively try to get Indians involved in war, that is when the Confederacy began to question whether or not these promises that were made for as long as the sun shines were really true. The chairman, when did the Indian wars end? Ms. Locklear, if I may, Senator, in his original edition, Felix Cohen observed that there were warlike relations maintained with certain tribes up until the late 19th century. However, most of those wars were not of the nature that threatened the existence of the United States or extended really beyond a regional basis. The original hostilities with certain powerful Iroquois tribes and Western tribes either immediately before, during, or after the Revolutionary War were of such a nature, however, that they did extend beyond simply regional boundaries and threaten the existence of the United States. However, war conditions existed on one level or another with one tribe or another, according to Felix Cohen, up until late 19th century. Mr. Lyons, I think the point should be recognized that in Fort Seal, Oklahoma, the Apaches were still in prison well into the 20th century, the early part of the 20th century. So you could say that existence continued right up until this century, and it is an important aspect for American people to consider that such a thing would continue up until this moment. I would also like to say that the first treaty was made in 1776 with the new nation rather than 1778, and that was a treaty of neutrality and peace. For which the large belts were brought and exchanged. Chairman, I have been told by anthropologists and historians that about 200 years ago, there were at least 12 million Indians residing in what we call the continental United States. Would that number be correct? Mr. Lyons, it is a difficult question again, but it is also conservative. There are larger estimates. The chairman, that is why I said at least. Mr. Lyons, yes, at the very least, that is a conservative estimate. Let me go back and this I've been told by anthropologists and stories that about 200 years ago, there were at least 12 million Indians residing in what is called the continent of the United States. So, in the continent of the United States, 12 million, what happened to them? 
paper genocide, y'all. Mr. Shape called Degler, who is one of the leading demographics who studies populations estimated at the time of European contact, there were over 100 million Indian people in North America, the chairman in the continental United States. Mr. Shape, within all the North America, the chairman, what would be their, your estimates? Mr. Deloria, I think 50 to 70 million in the continental United States. Senator. The chairman, then I have been told that at the end of the 19th century or about the time the Indian Wars ended, there were approximately 250,000 Indians residing in the United States. Mr. Laura, that is the official census. But what you have to recognize in that figure is there are a lot of Indian communities that were not identified as Indians who have been since identified as Indians. The federal census used to, used to depend on the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and the Bureau of Indian Affairs used to do estimates. A federal census taker would come to a canyon and shout, how many Indians are down there? If an echo came back, well, that figure is highly reliable. See, they were estimating, and then uh, we know a lot didn't get counted. Because why? While they were setting up these treaties or after these treaties, they were putting out bait. Oh, if you become this, we'll give you this benefit. So people were switching up who they were. Now, no longer being identified as indigenous. Okay. Chairman, that is very scientific. Mr. Lyons, I think the point being made is correct, though. There were very many fewer Indians at that time, and the question remains as to what happened to all those people who were original to these territories and land. Chairman, so you are saying that 200 year ago, years ago, there were about 50 million Indians residing in the continent of the United States. Mr. Lyons, right. The chairman, and that can be appro pro pro appropriately documented. Mr. Lord, it is the middle figure between very conservative people who say 12 million and more liberal people who say 100 to 120 million. So I think in the middle is reasonably good. See, they're coming up with estimates. See, even this guy who's supposed to be you know, indigenous, he don't know because he ain't one of the originals. So he's speaking from a point of view to keep his lighter-skinned in indigenous people in, in, in to get these benefits. But I'm going to tell you, every hood that we call hood, every ghetto where you see dark people, 99.9% .9 of those people are indigenous people to this land. They have no ties to Africa. Yes, they're still here. They just don't know who they are. This is what they don't want you to know. So even in this hearing, there's, even though there's some truth being revealed, the whole truth is not being shown. Because at this time, the image of a of a indigenous person is a lighter skinned mulatto. Okay, Octoroon. All right. You would have to do an extensive study, but to give you an example, the Chinook population over a three year period went from fifty thousand to less than five thousand. How did they go from that? You know, like just drop like that. They didn't die off like that. Reclassification. These are people that lived the, along the Columbia River in the years 1828 to 1831. They were ravaged by a strange flu, and it wiped out 90% of the population. I seriously doubt that, uh, but that's what they're saying. You can go to the Mandans 
who were at 15,000 to 7,000, they would got wiped out to less than 500. Diseases did an awful lot of this, but one of the problems is that we won most of the wars that we had with the United States, so that is why we are on the short end of things. The chairman, I shall do my best to make certain that your statements will be read carefully by members of this committee and hopefully the rest of the Congress. I thank you all very much. I am going, uh, let me read this. Mr. Lyons, Senator Inouye, I would like at this moment to have the delegates from the Seneca and Mohawk and the Oneida Nations just to stand and be recognized. And I'll stop right there. Um, Spirit moved me, I'll read some more next week. All right, thanks for listening to that. But just remember, the real people, the real indigenous people are still here and they're in every state. Still around, but they're calling themselves different things. They don't know. Some say they're Moors. Some claim other things. African-Americans. But what has to happen? Um... You got to really look deep into the history. And the most of the people on all sides are just generalizing who they are. And the only reason why they call themselves either more or something else is because someone else told them that. They didn't do any further research. And I, yeah, more is a, yeah, that's <laughs> would be accurate. But remember, Moors were all over. And they would, they would, um, around these parts and all parts of the world before any other government was existed but even it even goes deeper than that yes moors were the originators of slavery okay but remember what i told you what goes around comes around what you visit on someone else you're gonna get a visit on you so when we say we start to look at things as why are we going through these hard times is because we put hard times on other people we have to take responsibility or some of our ancestors' actions. We weren't holier than thou. We weren't above reproach. We, we, we did some things, and this is why we lost power. We, we went down as a people. But what I'm saying is, when you see a person of color, that is an aboriginal, indigenous person or people, or free inhabitant, or the real American, the true American. All right, peace. Remember to tune in every Tuesday, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, blogtalkradio.com forward slash hindsight 2020. Name change webinar. You know That's the big thing right now. Akimel.com. Go get it. Um, I'll put the templates up there shortly. I haven't done it yet. Oh, uh, got other hosts. Uh, we have Bathsheba on Sunday, Raising Independent Thinking, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Bun Bay, Monday, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, The Bun Bay Show. And on Wednesday, 10 a.m., The Solomon's Temple. That's just a general discussion on health remedies. And Jessica and Tasia on Thursday, uh, The Divine Connection. And Fridays, Freedom Fridays, uh, with Xavier L. Jr. All right, remember, stay in power, 
Always think positive. Peace, prosperity, health, and wealth to all. Peace.